Good Shepherd, help us to hear your voice and come to you when you call. Amen. When I was in seminary, there was a bookshelf in the common room of my dorm, which we had designated the Wall of Religious Kitsch. It turns out, when you're studying for holy orders, that certain people, your grandmother, for instance, assume that you would like to be surrounded by a lot of holy stuff. Stuff like framed postcards of that Footprints in the Sand poem, or snow globes with scenes of Jerusalem inside. Generations of seminarians had contributed many precious gifts of this sort to the wall over the years. And there were multiple versions of Christ as the Good Shepherd on the wall of religious kitsch. Figurines, drawings, coffee cups, magnets. Christ the Good Shepherd is a sentimental favorite. Most of the churches that I've served have had a beautiful stained glass window depicting the gentle Savior, lamb in arms, patiently guiding the flock with his crook. Now, I haven't found this window at St. Luke's yet, but I would not be surprised if it's in here somewhere. Today, friends, is the fourth Sunday of Easter, also known as Good Shepherd Sunday. The readings change a little from year to year, but every Easter four, there are always green rolling hills, peaceful still waters, gentle sheep, lost lambs, and of course, the kind, patient, loving shepherd. Now, in order to cut through all of this sentimentalism, I've heard plenty of sermons on Good Shepherd Sunday that try to describe the real world of a first century shepherd, what with the bandits and the wolves, the dirt and the sweat, the sleeping out of doors, the poverty. It's unfortunate that we are so far removed from this pastoral economy in our modern lives because the image and metaphor of the shepherd turns up over and over in the Bible. But it's a hard metaphor for us to enter into. I mean, I don't know any shepherds, do you? But the Bible is filled with shepherds. Jacob was a shepherd, as was his son Joseph. Moses was a shepherd, between being a prince of Egypt and then a prophet. When we first encounter David, long before he becomes Israel's greatest king, he's just a boy tending his father's sheep. And it is shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night who are the first to hear of Jesus' birth. The prophet Isaiah even imagines God as a shepherd, coming to rescue his people from exile in Babylon, like a shepherd going after lost sheep. Isaiah says that God will lead his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs into his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead the mother sheep. All of these stories, all of these shepherds are in the background. When Jesus proclaims, as he does in the gospel today, I am the good shepherd. In the 23rd Psalm, a psalm so well known that many of us can say it by heart, we join the psalmist to make this declaration that the Lord is my shepherd. The word we translate Lord here is actually the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is the sacred and intimate name of God, a name so holy that Jews won't even pronounce it. 
When you hear that line from Psalm 23 from now on, know that the psalmist imagines not a cold and distant Lord, but rather a shepherd that's closer to your heart than your own breath. Think of the most sacred place in your life, the place where you can feel God's love enfolding you and, and pulsing through you. Imagine the being that animates that place and make that being your shepherd. Make Yahweh your shepherd. That's what the Psalm 23 is saying. But God is not always at the center of our lives. We don't always make the Lord our shepherd. Yahweh is not always first in our hearts. Think about who or what it is that you really put your trust into day by day. What person or institution or thing do you turn to when you are lost and desperate? Who are you willing to follow no matter what? Theologian Paul Tillich calls this thing, whatever it is that's first in your heart, your ultimate concern. In fact, that's Tillich's definition of faith. In his book, The Dynamics of Faith, he writes, faith is the state of being ultimately concerned. The dynamics of faith are the dynamics of our ultimate concern. Any spiritual concern, cognitive, aesthetic, social, political, can claim ultimacy for a human life. What Tillich is saying is that every human being is, in fact, a person of faith. But some people have put their faith into less than ultimate things. What we have faith in may not, in fact, be God. And when we put our faith into things that are less than ultimate, it can be very dangerous, both for ourselves and for people around us. Tillich offers two examples of misplaced ultimate concern, faith in the nation and faith in the idea of success. Tillich was writing in the mid-20th century, and it, it was only too obvious, following the horrors of the Second World War and the Holocaust, how misguided nationalism could quickly descend into barbarism. And as he surveyed the conformist cultural landscape of the late 50s, he saw that our country's obsession with social standing and economic power as empty, empty promises whose poverty would be fully revealed only when we got what we thought we wanted. Yearning for success, this is only human nature, but success in the end doesn't matter. Success won't, in fact, save us. Living in a country that embodies success, as we do, and being people who, by the world's count, are successful, as many of us are, well, it puts us in a strange and maybe a difficult relationship to Jesus and his gospel. It's because Jesus' good news was not primarily for the successful people of the world, for the people at the top. Jesus' good news was mostly for people who were at the bottom of the social structure. It was aimed at the lowliest people who were being subjugated by the Roman Empire. To follow Jesus while living at the very top of the hierarchy that he critiqued, it wouldn't be impossible, but it wouldn't be easy to do either. If Jesus' gospel is to penetrate our hearts, 
It means that we'll have to think critically about all that God has given us, all of the abundance and the blessings that God has bestowed upon us. And if we believe Jesus' gospel, then we will have to decide how we will give some of this abundance away in order to be a blessing to others. What are we willing to give up so that everyone can have enough? This, friends, is God's call to us. The goal of, of a Christian community is to make sure that everyone is cared for, that everyone receives a fair share of what God has provided for all. And all really does mean all. As Jesus says in the gospel passage this morning, I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd, all under one shepherd. We are all God's children in this flock that Jesus is gathering, even those who seem different from us, who look different from us, who come from different places, or believe different things. God's love knows no boundaries. The key, I think, is learning how to hear our shepherd's voice. Jesus warns us that bandits and thieves will try to deceive us, other voices will pretend to stand in God's place. They'll pretend to be the final, the most important, the ultimate thing in our life. But those voices are not God. Corporations are not God. The United States of America is not God. Somewhere in all of the noise of our lives, Yahweh is speaking, is calling to us, and that that is our shepherd's voice. It is a voice which speaks love alone. Amen.